Good morning. Welcome to the uh, matinee edition of Update Live. I would like to begin by proposing a subtitle for this weekend's concert, which would be Two Seconds and a First. I'm sorry if that sounds like the results of some athletic contest. It wasn't meant to. But if you look at the works on today's program, I think it's pretty clear why. The concert opens unusually with the concerto of the day, Brahms' second concerto, so the, the second of two, a giant that takes up the entire first half of the concert. The work that closes the concert is Ravel's Daphnis and Chloe suite number two, again, the second of two. So that covers the two seconds. The first is the first performance today, the first group of performances for the weekend of James Matheson's commissioned work by the LAFL Unchained. So that is definitely the first of the program. It's an interesting process. You don't think of it too much, but this is a work that nobody could get to know in advance. There's obviously no recording of it because it hasn't been performed yet. It doesn't exist yet as a piece of music. It has been heard in the composer's imagination, and undoubtedly while he's working with the sounds, probably with the piano or the computer or something, and it exists up until this moment, up until a few days ago, only in the imaginary state. In the last few days, of course, it's been rehearsed, and in a little over an hour will be the first time it actually happens as a real piece of music performed before the public. Since obviously this, uh, I've had a look at the score, so I know something about it, but the better source of information truly is the composer himself, and we're fortunate to have James Matheson with us this morning. There's a great story behind the piece, and he would like to share that with you. So James, please join me. <coughs> Good morning. If you'd like, there's a stool for you, otherwise you can uh, stand. I can sing, I can dance, <laughs> I can do all sorts of things. Perfect. I'd like to kick it off just by uh, asking the obvious question, since nobody knows this piece yet, how did it come to existence? Uh, well, the commission came about back when I was, um, I was leading a program here at the LA Phil called the, uh, the Composer Fellowship Program. I think that the name has a, uh, is a little longer now. But, uh, but it's the Composer Fellowship Program, which is essentially a program where uh, I helped mentor six, well, sorry, four composers, um, uh, young composers from the LA County area, high school age composers, through a two-year program. And I did this three times for a total of six years, obviously. And so it was during that time when I was out here and, and had various conversations with, uh, with the administration here that, that we came up with a project. And the background of the piece itself. <laughs> There's maybe some story behind it? There, there is indeed a story behind it. Um, so the, the story really begins 21 years ago in 1996 when I was a graduate student at Cornell, Cornell University. When I was at Cornell, I was studying with Stephen Stuckey, who many of you may be familiar with for his, because of his long association with the LA Philharmonic. Um, and after, at sort of at the end of a, of a sort of traumatic relationship that I had, um, I, I, I befriended a man one night, um, and we were we were hanging out, and we were we spent a couple of weeks just talking a lot and solving the world's problems, and um, and 
it turns out we came from very different backgrounds. So while I was sort of a, a you know, a white privileged graduate student at Cornell, he, he was a black man who came from the Ithaca community, and Ithaca is a small town. And it turns out he had grown up in, in foster homes and, um, and then in juvenile detention centers, and he'd, he'd had a very, very different sort of life than I have. But for a couple of weeks, we were very close friends. Um, and then we had a kind of a falling out one night, and um, I won't go into the details of it here, but, but I, I ended up filing charges against him with the Ithaca Police Department and, and, and running away. Um, so, you know, I was this kind of spoiled white kid and I, I filed charges against a friend of mine who was black from the community and, and life went on. Um, recently, I had my own sort of encounter with the possibility of incarceration over child support stuff. It's nothing, it's not gonna happen. But, but for the first time in my life, for the first time in my life, I was confronted with the possibility of going to jail. And this was back in November. And this provoked a lot of thought on my part into my, into my past and, what, and to what I had done to my friend. And uh, so I reached out to him. I, I, I tracked him down. It turns out of those 20 years um, that, that in the 21 intervening years, 17 of those years, he had up, ended up spending in prison, not because of what I had done, but because the Ithaca Police Department had it in for him and they, they brought charges against him, various charges against him that were wildly disproportionate to the sentences that he served. And and he's, he's now about to be released. He's gonna be released on Monday from a, a mental health facility that's, that's sort of transitioning him back into the world. And so Unchained is, for me, uh, a sort of atonement for, for what I did, but also for just for the, excuse me, <laughs> for, for the suffering that some people in this world have to endure because they aren't born with the right color skin or with the right, in, in the right sort of environment. Um, I, see, I see the prison system today as an evolution of, 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 of slavery, essentially. There were the slavery, there were the Jim Crow laws, and now the way that we deal with people that we have a hard time with is often through the prison system. And um, so all of this was happening while I was writing this piece, and it couldn't help but filter its way into the piece itself. Uh, and hence it's called Unchanged, because this is, this is, Monday is this the, the, the day that this man is free. There's one sort of symbolic element in the piece that I think is, is worth noting, which is that there's a, there's a point where, after a moment of great tension and drama, uh, you'll hear steel drum, you know, the steel, Tim uh, steel pan drum, which is an instrument that comes from Trinidad. Um, and th there's an interesting story behind, behind the origin of the steel drum, because steel drums, ultimately, Trinidad was colonized, and there were, there were slaves, black slaves, who were brought from Africa to Trinidad. Both the, the colonists and the slaves, and eventually they were freed slaves, celebrated Carnival. 
And the way that they did it was a, a little bit different based on the, you know, the origins of each of the, the two different populations. Over time, the, the French colonists suppressed and banned various instruments that, uh, that the slaves and then former slaves had used as part of their celebration of Carnival. So that ultimately, after many decades, they were left with piles of garbage, essentially. And th there's something heroic to me about the spirit of, pe of people who would look at garbage and say, you know what, ban everything you want, we're still gonna make music. We're gonna find a way to make music out of this garbage. And, and so all of these various things kind of came together for me while I was writing the piece. Wow, He's, this is great. He's doing all the work for me. He covered, he covered about two more questions I wanted to get to, but now I have one more that uh, just for my reference because I'm obviously interested in the process as well. The other two pieces on today's program were written over a, an unusually long period of time, three years each, the Brahms Second Piano Concerto and Ravel, Daphnis, and Chloe. Sometimes everything clicks and pieces go together in a few weeks or a couple of months. Sometimes they drag on for some years. What is the situation with this piece? It's funny that you should ask that because the, the last piece that I wrote uh, that the LA Philharmonic played was a violin concerto. And the very first idea that you'll hear in this piece is, is from a very, very early draft of my violin concerto. It's completely different. This didn't make it into the violin concerto in any way. But, but as I was sort of looking for ideas, this, this came back to me as something that I wanted to use, and it all kind of evolved from there. And I wrote this really in a fairly short amount of time. I mean, I, I sometimes I think about pieces and think about them and mm -hmm. think about them, but then the actual process of composition so you know, it comes down to, you know, a uh, couple of months. Couple, couple months. Of months, yeah. Yeah, super. Um, you've written five or so orchestral pieces before this? That's, that's about right, yeah. Uh, this is a question I love to ask myself all the time, and I still haven't come up with exactly the correct answer. The orchestra, or the final answer. The orchestra is a very complicated beast. Uh, where do you feel you are? in the long process of taming the beast, really understanding it, <laughs> being comfortable with the orchestra the as a medium. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, I have a fairly, I mean, to, to some years it would seem a fairly conservative sort of musical language. Um, and I grow out of the tradition of, of composers who've been celebrated by the LA Phil over time. So Ludislawski, yep. we told Ludislawski, uh, Stephen Stuckey, Mahler. Um, I mean, these are, these are some of the big influences for me and sort of where I gravitate. So it's, it, I, think, I think there's a recognizable harmonic language and, and generally the language of the piece I think is something that will be easy to understand, um, but it's, it's got some complexity to it and there's some harmonies that I think will, you know, perhaps expand some years, I've, I have, I, you know, I don't know. But, but I do think it's, it's a, I don't write the wildest music, but I don't write very tame music either. It's somewhere in between. How do you feel about uh, your command of the orchestra at this stage? It is a lifetime study, for sure. Definitely. Are you comfortable with orchestra? I love writing for orchestra. I would write for orchestra <laughs> every day of every, of every day of my life if, I, if that were an opportunity available to me. There's nothing more that I enjoy.
Yeah, it's a, a wonderful medium, obviously. And just, again, this is completely for my curiosity, if I may ask, do you like to work at the piano, away from the piano? Uh, I work away from the piano, I work at the piano. I, as time has gone on, I've worked more and more at the computer, because in, the, in a similar way to the way that a writer might use a word processor, I, I use a program that is essentially a, a, a word processor, but for music. So just the, the, the time that it saves me is, is, is unbelievable. So I, I use a combination of, of all. I mean, you, you're a composer also. I'm sure you remember days of oh, yeah. handwriting out parts. I, and and I was, yeah. I'm just young enough that I came of age at a time when that was still the only option. You had to write everything out. And I spent an entire summer writing out the parts for a like a 10-minute piece for nine instruments. Mm -hmm. to, to, to write out the parts by hand for a piece like this would take a lot longer than that. Yeah, if I can comment on that, he, is, he came along at, at exactly the right moment because uh, really the computer took over those duties for composers, the most menial part of it, around the early 90s, which means that about half of my co composition career was in the, uh, the handwritten part. And just to put it in further perspective, at least I grew up with writing out a set of parts, and then we had a photocopy machine to cover the string parts. The generation before me either had to do it themselves or hire out a copyist to do, you know, 10 or eight or 10 first violin parts. Exactly the same thing over and over. So this, uh, it's not a bad time in terms of the menial work to be a no, composer I, at all. I think some of those Wagner operas, actually, I mean, they had to have armies of copyists, oh, yeah. armies. Yeah. Like, I mean, uh, yeah. I, 50 or 100 copies. Another uh, related situation, uh, Bach, for about four years, was writing a 20-minute cantata every week for the following Sunday's service. His solution was, of course, he had all of his kids copying out the parts for him. <laughs> There's a, yeah, it's original. Um, any final comments about the, uh, the piece? No, I, I'm I, definitely I looking forward to hearing it. Oh, I do have one more question. Okay. How have you perceived the rehearsals? Okay, this is the first time he's hearing the piece is during the rehearsals. I assume you've been here all week. Uh, yes, I got to hear that. Tuesday. What is it like hearing the first reading and then hearing it progress to today? Uh-oh. It's, it's the evolution from anxiety to joy. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it. <laughs> but no, I, the, the first time is... is there's all sorts of tension, and you never know what's going to go wrong and what yeah. my mistakes might have, I might have made. Um, but over the course of a couple of days of rehearsals, it, it, it evolves into something that's really kind of miraculous. Yeah. So. That's a wonderful process. It really is amazing. So final thoughts, or? No, I just ho I hope you enjoy the piece. Great. Thank you. Okay, we have two other rather imposing pieces on the program as well, and I would like to talk about those briefly. It is, first of all, very unusual, unless they've changed the program without my knowing it, uh, what do you have in front of you? The program begins with the Brahms Second Piano Concerto, correct? I don't think I've ever heard a concert here that begins with the concerto of the evening. I don't know if you've thought about that. There's almost always an overture or a short symphonic work first, to set it up, followed by the concerto, and then maybe a major work for the second half. So this is quite an unusual program. The two shorter works this time are on the second half, 
Brahms' second piano concerto is a big one, uh, 48 to 50 minutes long or a little more, depending on tempos and time between movements and so forth. So it needs to have its own half of the program. It's very difficult to pair this particular concerto with something else. But the fact that it's the first half of the program, even more out of the ordinary. So um, given the way the entire concert starts, I th I, this piece, by the way, this is one I first heard as a teenager and immediately fell in love with it. And it has been with me for all these years. And coming back to it is wonderful uh, in a live performance. One of the things that struck me the, as being the most unusual, the most inventive about the piece is the very beginning itself. And I don't want to make so much of this because it goes by in half a minute. I'll, I'll undoubtedly talk longer about the passage than it takes in performance. But it's that special to me. It has to do with, okay, you're a composer. You may or may not have written some concertos before. Brahms had one piano concerto, obviously, before this one. How do you begin your new piece? Most composers have not really thought very much about that. And the evidence of that is that they mostly start in, not all the same, but in one way, and that is by having an extended orchestral introduction or exposition before the soloist comes in. That's the way, you know, I don't have the exact numbers for you, but I would say 90 or 95% of concertos begin like that, not just piano concertos. The exceptions are few. Okay, just to give a couple of examples, I'm not gonna give the entire history. Mozart wrote 27 piano concertos. Of those, 26 begin with an extended orchestral exposition. So that gives you an idea of how unusual the, anything to the contrary is. The other one, by the way, the one exception, the number nine, the early, very large E-flat concerto, uh, begins with about half a phrase in the orchestra, and the piano solo comes right in to finish the phrase. It is really an unusual moment and completely unexpected from a 21-year-old Mozart at that moment. Uh, Beethoven, just to jump to the next generation, three of his five piano concertos begin in the typical way with a long orchestral exposition. Beethoven became famous for finding creative ways of kind of subverting or outdoing traditional forms. His fourth concerto begins with a very calm piano solo stating the first theme before the orchestra has played a note. That was quite unusual. The fifth concerto of Beethoven just begins with a short chord in the orchestra followed by a piano cadenza. Quite unusual. Uh, following in that tradition, Schumann's concerto has the piano jump in very quickly. So there were already some exceptions, but still the, uh, the way to do it was to begin with the orchestra. Brahms' solution in this piece is brilliant. It's understated brilliance. Uh, you probably know this already, some of you who love the piece as much as I do, but it begins with a horn solo. So you have the entire orchestra, the soloist up front, you're used to hearing all of them play at once at the beginning of the piece. Just the horn alone with a short fragment of melody, sort of a half of a phrase, and the solo piano comes right in under it, accompanying it, and eventually finishing the thought. So of all the ways you can begin a concerto, this one is quite unusual. Let me see if I can wake my computer up long enough to let you know what it sounds like.
So out of context at this point, when you're looking at the stage, obviously, so you see the rest of the orchestra out there, but it's just a horn and piano piece. And the piano is not dominant in any way. Um, after that, you do get a full exposition of the orchestra and some other things going on before the piano finally takes over the theme. It's a very simple, elegant theme, and the beauty of it is that it can take on a lot of different emotional characters and sub be subjected to a lot of different treatments. So the next excerpt, I a couple of excerpts I have for you uh, begin to get at that just a little bit. The next one is a couple of minutes further along and by the way, it's not just a brilliant piece eventually for the solo piano, as a concerto needs to be. There's some brilliant orchestral writing as well. And this one illustrates some of that. And then after the uh, this very brilliant passage in the orchestra with the, uh, the violins and cellos kind of imitating each other and some very uh, virtuosic passages, they state at least a suggestion of the theme, a new version of, of it, very majestic, very assertive. But keep in mind, this is all still the same theme, slightly transformed each time. The next one, okay, this is the, an orchestral transition to set up the next very large entrance of the piano. This one has two statements of the theme, not really complete, but certainly recognizable. The first one is an attempt to make the piano sound larger than the orchestra, and I think a successful one. It's very difficult to achieve, but the way Brahms wrote for the piano, it's at least within the realm of possibility. Uh, this is immediately followed by a second statement in the piano, 180 degree emotional turn from that. Very calm, elegiac, and actually reminding me in advance, this hadn't happened yet, but of Rachmaninoff, who was a, a young boy at this time. Again, keep in mind, this is all the same theme. Each time it comes back, it brings you someplace different. There's enough of it to remember the first few notes of the scale. I've heard that before, but I haven't been here yet until this moment. And that's really one of the beauties of the piece. <coughs> Moving ahead, the second movement is another unusual, illustrates another unusual feature of the piece. It's a four-movement concerto. And the second movement, at least, has some elements of what is called a scherzo. You hear them in symphonies, not very often in concertos. Um, the true scherzo is something very lighthearted and humorous. This one is not. It's, uh, Brahms referred to it as a scherzo in letters and when he was talking to people about the piece. You'll see some of that, by the way, in the program notes, which you should read before the concert starts. There's some great points made there as well. 
This movement, the second movement of Brahms' second concerto, doesn't have the character, the lighthearted and humorous character of a scherzo. It's a big, serious piece with absolutely my favorite theme in the entire piece. Um, you'll get an idea of the character of it, but it, it has power. It's another very powerful, very serious theme. So this is the beginning of the second movement. certainly enough to give you an idea. There's nothing really humorous or lighthearted about that one. It just takes you away with its power. Um, one of the features of the scherzo kind of movement, the, uh, the approach in the early years, by the way, it was uh, from Beethoven's time, it was a movement that had very clear divisions between the sections. So the principal section does what it's going to do. It has a very clear end point, the next section, contrasting section begins, runs its course, and again, has a very clear end point before it returns to the opening material. This one has a great moment. We are now, okay, so a large three-part form. We're toward the middle, oh, sorry, toward the end of the middle section, where you normally have a clear close and then a return, a very clear return of the main theme. This one, the material suggesting the theme kind of sneaks in under the end of the middle section, and then when it finally does hit, you, you know when it's coming. When it hits, there's something wrong with it. It doesn't have all of its power yet. It is being stated in sort of a ghost manner, a suggestion of what is going to happen without actually having arrived just yet. It's a wonderful passage. So you can hear that it's going to come back, but it hasn't really arrived yet. And then, of course, he brings the, uh, the theme in with the full power and the interaction between the piano and orchestra. The third movement, the slow movement, again, has some uh, very interesting, very inventive features. This is the one in which the solo piano participates the least, and especially for the first couple minutes of it. Uh, this is uh, one of the great moments to let the sol some of the soloists of the orchestra shine, in particular, in this case, the cello. It begins, the movement begins with the cello solo very lightly accompanied behind it. And I'll give you that first, and then an idea of how the rest of the movement evolves. This is sort of a, a roadmap giving you the highlights of each movement.
Okay, and it's so gorgeous, you don't want anything to interrupt that. And it's passed around various sections of the orchestra for quite some time. I think this is the longest purely orchestral passage in the entire piece. It's about uh, over two minutes before the solo piano comes in. And when it does, it, is, it has to be because of this theme, very subtle, very understated, coming in again first as an accompanying force. And then when it does take over, it's a very interesting feature of the, uh, of the movement to me. At some point, when I, especially the first time I heard the piece, I was waiting for the solo piano to have the statement of the theme. It could be decorated or something with fancy figurations, but at some point the piano needs to have the theme. It doesn't. It suggests the theme, it takes little parts of it with figuration that are, make it barely recognizable. It never actually has a full statement of the theme, which is amazing. It leaves you always kind of wanting it to happen and leaving you unfulfilled by the end of the movement. Here is, though, the very first entrance of the piano over two minutes into the slow movement. And then this will at least give you an idea of how the solo instrument treats the theme, which is very vaguely, I have to say. The end of the cello solo. almost, well, in that case, there's almost nothing to recognize. If you compare the two, you just listen to the cello theme and then listen to the piano, you'll hear some connection, but the piano isn't playing the theme. It's playing around it. A brilliant use of the instrument in very subtle ways, and the relationship between the piano and the orchestra constantly changing throughout the piece. The last movement brings you something, again, you've experienced quite an emotional range up to this moment. Certainly the powerful and the serious have been there, lyrical also. The one thing that hasn't happened in the piece up to this point is something really lighthearted, humorous, playful. It's being saved for the last movement. So here's the beginning, and then at least an idea of what happens with it. This is a completely different character from anything that has come before it. And keep in mind, you're half an hour into the piece by now, or a little more. So he saves that for the last movement. It has its brilliant moments, obviously, for the, uh, for the soloist, but the character remains pretty close to that. The other pair of themes together, okay, so again, he's taken a very traditional form here, and in this case, treated it mostly in the traditional way. It's a rondo, I don't know if you've heard about that one from other pieces probably, but to, there are several versions of it. In this one, it's a, a form of five sections. The first, third, and fifth sections use the theme you just heard. The second and fourth have contrasting material. 
So this is the basis of the second and fourth sections. gives you a pretty good overview of a very large piano concerto. Again, it's in the neighborhood of 50 minutes, depending on the particular tempos. By the way, I should mention, anytime you see a timing of any piece of music, it has to be an approximation. Perform each performer has his own favorite tempo for a particular movement. Conductors for the orchestral passages may take this part a little faster, this part a little slower. But uh, just to have an idea of the scope of the piece, it generally comes out within a couple of minutes of 50 minutes. So it's a big one. Uh, for me, it keeps me riveted the entire time, and that's not an easy thing to achieve. Our time is limited, however, to a little bit less than that, so I need to move on to the Ravel. This is a piece that became part of a fairly short but very important progress, uh, project, tradition, that lasted only a decade or so. Uh, you may have heard of the Russian ballet master, he did a lot of things before, but Sergei Diaghilev, who uh, founded a ballet company, among other things, first in St. Petersburg, then working with Paris, sort of back and forth, and then really making the main base of operations in Paris. The most wonderful thing Diaghilev did for history, besides obviously having a great ballet company, was to commission some of the leading younger composers of the day to write the music for ballets. Some of these include, I'll start with the most famous ones. This was really what made Stravinsky known. The three big ballets, the Firebird, Petrushka, and the Rite of Spring, 1909, 1911, 1913. As you can imagine, at two-year intervals, producing those three blockbuster works and having them produced as ballets, and then, of course, immediately as orchestral pieces separately from that. Other composers included Claude Debussy with a piece called Le Jeu, Ravel with uh, Daphnis and Chloe, um, Manuel de Falla, The Three-Cornered Hat Suite, and a number of others. They were the suite, I say, it was taken from the ballet, the same process that Daphnis and Chloe underwent. If you want to read some endorsements of how some fairly important people felt about Daphnis and Chloe. In the program notes, there's a wonderful quote from Stravinsky. Uh, he liked this one. I mean, he wasn't effusive with his praise of a lot of pieces, but he immediately thought that Daphnis and Chloe by Ravel was an absolute masterpiece. He was right. It's very difficult to argue with that. Um, the part of it you're going to hear, suite number two, I've never seen the entire ballet produced, and by the way, it isn't produced very often. I'm not sure I've even heard of a production in my lifetime. I'd have to think about that some more. But it exists more now as two separate orchestral suites. The entire ballet is in three large parts, the first part in six movements, the middle part in three movements, and the last part also in three movements. The Daphnis and Chloe suite number two is the entire last part. So the three movements, Levé du jour, Pantomime, and Danse Générale, 
are the three movements that make up the last part of the ballet. So he kept it pretty much intact. I'll give you an idea of some, I'm gonna make sure I get through these in time. Just an idea of the overall structure as you hear it. Uh, the difference, the change from the first part to the second part is almost imperceptible. It's again not a situation where you have separate movements. The one flows directly into the next and the second movement has almost the same character as the first. Uh, what will let you know when you're solidly in the second part is the fact that it's mostly dominated by flute, uh, flute section, solos, individuals, and the entire section, flute, alto, flute, and piccolo. Uh, the change into the third part, the, uh, the dance, the fast one, is a little clearer, although the line is blurred, but you'll know when you get there just because of the motion. Um, a couple of excerpts from each one, again, whatever I have time for, just to give you an idea about them. The opening texture, I can only imagine how long it took Ravel to create this. I've looked at the score quite extensively, and the part that you're going to hear, the very opening begins with a texture, just sort of this fluttering sound in the woodwinds. And it, it's a beautiful sound. I don't take anything away from that, but I think when you listen to it, it's safe to say that you have no idea what kind of complexity in the imagination and then in the notation was involved in creating this texture. The woodwinds, which you hear in groups of twos, threes, and fours at the beginning are playing about 10 notes to the second together in groups. So the one thing is that first of all, the composer has to write out each one of these parts so if you're writing 10 notes or so for each second, figure the movement goes on for at least quite a few minutes, the amount of work in that. Then the amount of work for the individual woodwind players. These are not easy passages. Now, the L.A. Phil woodwind players are about as good as they get, but I'm sure that they had to spend some time practicing these before the first rehearsal. They're challenging parts. Then, once each player learns to play these insanely difficult lines that are very specifically notated, it's up to the conductor to get them to synchronize it all, which is, again, an additional challenge. So the first section, this is not the very beginning of the piece, but about ha almost half a minute into it. What you'll notice at the beginning is this flurry of woodwinds, which eventually goes back and forth with the strings, but it's al is there almost constantly throughout the first section. Then a few seconds later, you'll become aware of a slow-moving melody which begins low and builds and begins to spiral upward. So uh, listen to that first, and then I'll have some comments about how it's treated later. This one's going back to C. So through all of that, the woodwinds are playing. They don't have to, nobody has to play for a long period of time. They go for a couple of measures and then it's taken over by one of the other winds. But the overall effect has to be just this continuous stream of notes passed back and forth between the various wind instruments. Okay, there's one little bit of a climax that it reached. It's still within the first minute or so of the piece. Within the first movement, 
there are two more of those. And I didn't want to play the big one toward the end because a, a playback system, I don't care how good it is, cannot do it justice. You need to hear that for real with the orchestra, and you will. But uh, you might have your seat belts on for that one. It's a, it's a giant. Uh, Ravel was probably the best orchestrator ever. You know, I rarely make sweeping statements like that, and it's really hard because it's a matter of taste to some extent. But throughout the piece, you're going to hear amazing orchestral colors. It's one thing to preview it on a recording that doesn't do any of them justice. Okay, the middle part, the pantomime, is dominated by flute solos, and I didn't want to give you the most thematic part of it. I have a, uh, a little clip of one of the most dazzling parts of it, and it starts out with just the, the normal flute, the C flute, and this particular passage expands so that you hear the piccolo also. The part I didn't record, there's a wonderful solo also for the alto flute, the slightly larger version of the flute, which has an absolutely gorgeous tone, and it's my instrument, so I'm perhaps not objective. Um, you'll hear a lot of the flutes in the second movement, and here is an example. Make sure I got the right one. especially the, the lectures in BP Hall, you can run over a few minutes and nobody cares. When it's on stage, I need to be out of here at a certain moment. So one last excerpt, and I mentioned that the transition into the third section, the dance, is a little bit vague, and that's only because there's one false start on it. You can recognize the material immediately. So the uh, second section is still kind of easing its way along slowly. There's one intrusion very suddenly of the material of the third movement, the dance, and then it crashes, and has to start over again, and then you can hear that you're really underway. Oh, wrong one, there it is. That was the preview. And then from that moment on, it's really perpetual motion, and it gets larger and more impressive as it goes. It's a dazzling score. And with that, I need to step back and let you take a little bit of a break, and then truly enjoy the concert as I will. Thank you for coming. Mm.